Hey, New River Church family. This December, join us for a special Advent series on the New River Church podcast, where we're diving into the season with the message of Jesus, bringing hope, love, joy, and peace. For more info, check out newriverchurch.org. Let's celebrate the season and share the gospel together. I'm a simple guy, and I'm not going to preach here. I might get a little spun up. I'm, you know, I spent a lot of time with God over the years, 29 years, and I spent some wonderful heavenly moments with God through this situation. And I feel like Jesus Prime, not Amazon Prime, I feel like Jesus Prime backed that tractor trailer up, Aaron, and started unloading the boxes. And when I open my Bible and I spend time meditating on it and praying, God says, here, here, here's another box, here's another gift, here's another. I'm going to spend a lifetime opening those boxes up. And so while this might be tough for me to share today and tough for you to hear, know that my heart is so overwhelmed with joy and excitement about God's miraculous work in our family's life and what he's instilled in me. I'm in fire. I am on fire. And I don't know if that's just for me or if it's for others, but I'm praying that God would open the door for me to share uh, just a spark or two with people that he puts me in uh, front of. I'm a simple guy. I've had two prayers uh, for all four of my children, and it started, honestly, when Aaron was born 19 years ago. It's the same prayer for Ben for 17 years. It's the same prayer for Katie for uh, 15 years, and it's the same prayer for Zach for 11 years. And quite honestly, there's times that I feel like God's not hearing or answering my prayers. That's my jab at parenthood. But the truth of the matter is, is my prayers for my kids are simple. It's Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And then the other prayer is, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He will make your roads straight. And those are the two prayers that I've been praying for 19 years uh, for all four of my children. And those prayers seem to come to an absolute dead end. It seemed to come to a place where my prayers didn't matter because I stood in a trauma unit on July 4th looking at my son struggling for life on a blood-soaked floor with his garments having and been cut off. And the surgeon comes up to me and he says, listen, David, your son has massive internal bleeding. Both kidneys are bleeding out. His liver is bleeding out. I don't know if we're going to save the colon. His spleen is in rough shape. He has seven fractures in his neck and in his back. He has a broken right angle, ankle, and he has tremendous internal bleeding from a femur on the right leg that has snapped. And that surgeon was giving me a list of all the reasons why me and Nicole should expect Aaron not to make it through five and a half hours of trauma surgery. I was in my hell. For the next three days, it was 
hell. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to share that with you. But the thoughts and the images that I was bombarded with, I knew for the first time in my entire life, uh, brother, that my faith in Jesus was on the table. I understood at that moment over the next three days that my enemy and your enemy had exactly what was within his reach to destroy my faith. And my brother shared last week that it is a wonder that any of us, that any of us trust, believe, and follow Jesus. He is so faithful, so loving, so patient, so forgiving. And in my moment of those first three days, I was in a living hell. And I had written half of my son's funeral. And that's where I was. With no hope, no peace, no rest, no way out. And if that wasn't enough, on three days later, I'm getting up and I'm going to the hospital. And three days later, he has a massive stroke. Now, this is not the kind of stroke where it's a blood clot. Okay, and you can stop it with a filter. This was the kind of uh, stroke where the uh, fat and the blood and the femur was pouring out and gushing out and went through the filter. And it wasn't isolated to any particular area of the brain. It was like the 4th of July and the sparks went up and they fell on his brain and nobody could run the test and nobody could tell us what the lasting impact was going to be. For over 14 or 15 days, my wife and I, with the team of specialists, and God bless them, God used them to bring my son back to our family. But for 14, 15, 16 days, all we heard is if he ever wakes up, we don't know who you're going to get. We don't know the errand that you're going to receive. He laid in a coma for 16 days, and the oxygen was so level that they had us prepared to receive a guy that was going to be slumped over in a wheelchair with a tube hanging out, and maybe he'd be able to communicate with us by moving something around an iPad or whatever. It is a parent's worst nightmare. And that's where we're at. Our pastor shared last week that God's, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, God's, uh, God's doing is my undoing. And we were literally, physically, spiritually, emotionally undone. Dead end. Broken. Hopeless. My soul was shattered in over a million pieces and laid there in that hospital. And with time and prayer and good friends, God picked those pieces up and put them together in the right order in the way that he wanted those pieces to come together. It was just absolutely amazing. I want to share with you uh, a phrase, this is 16 days into it, and it was a, just a living hell. It was a living nightmare. Uh, and I'm scrolling through Facebook, and I had a friend that I went to seminary with, and he was celebrating his anniversary, 20-year anniversary, 25th anniversary. And he wrote these words on Facebook. He said, God knew what I needed to love him more. God knew exactly what I needed to love him more. I'm sitting in the waiting room 
reading this after I spent two hours uh, with Nate. And that was just a wonderful time. Uh, we were laughing, joking. I had so much fun that I felt guilty that my son was 100 feet away on a ventilator and dying. And brother, that was a breath of fresh air. And when he left, I sat there and I read this Facebook post of my friend that said, God knew exactly what I needed to love him more. And I sat there in the waiting room of the neuro ICU 18 days, or should I say 16 days after the accident, and I knew that I knew that I knew, and this doesn't make sense, and this may sound very bizarre to you, but I knew that there was no better place for me to be in all of the world than sitting in that waiting room in the neuro ICU unit. God knew exactly what it, I needed, and God knew exactly what it would take to bring me to a place of joy a surprising joy, a gifted joy, a joy and a peace that surpasses all understanding. But God so orchestrated the circumstances and the situation of our life that he brought me to a place where my son is dying and there was no other place in the entire world that I'd rather be than sitting there in the presence of God, experiencing the joy and the love and the affection that he poured out on me. I want to backtrack. The accident was uh, July 4th, and four days had gone by, and uh, you could see the expression on every doctor's face and every nurse's face and every person that touched our son. You could see the worry, and you could see <clears throat> the doubt. And there was an absolutely no reason for me to experience any type of peace or joy at this particular moment. But I was going down to the cafeteria, and it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was walking down the long hallways of Hartford Healthcare, and I got in the elevator, and I started going down, and I had this sense of joy just flood. This is four days after the accident. My heart and soul just started flooding with joy, and it felt so unnatural, and it felt, quite honestly, it felt uh, premature, and in a sense, I felt like this is, uh, I was guilty for this sense of joy welling out. Now, I'm a military kid, and I spent three years, I spent 8th, ninth, and 10th grade in Germany, and I was fortunate to be at an age where we traveled all over Europe, and we hiked and camped and skied in the whole nine yards. And on one particular trip, we were camping in Germany. We we're going to go to the Zugspitz, the highest uh, peak uh, in Germany. And we were hiking and walking around, and I noticed that on the wall of rocks, a rock shelf that the water was kind of trickling down. It was just a trickle. And I went over and I was staring at this trickling of water and uh, asked my dad about it. And he said, no, that's not rainwater. That's, that's a spring. That's a natural spring. Go ahead and, and cup, cup your hand under the spring and taste the water. You're not going to taste any water that's even purer and cleaner than this. Go ahead and taste it. And so I tasted it. It was so refreshing. And that memory kind of stuck uh, in my mind. And on uh, July, uh, 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 what is the date here? July 8th, just four days later, I'm going down to uh, get something to eat. And God takes me back to that place as an eighth grader, right? 
But the difference is now is I'm sitting there and I've walked up and I find the source of the spring and I kind of, like a kid would do, I kind of put my finger in the spring and as soon as I reached out to touch the spring, I can feel the pressure of the water start pushing my finger up. Something odd is happening here. And so I put my hand down, palm, and I was trying to push this spring down. I was trying to keep the water from coming out, but the pressure was so great that even though I was trying to use two hands, I had to back off and let it and it was like a gusher at Yosemite. And so uh, God brought me back and said, listen, you can try to tamp down my joy, but you're going to fail at this. This is a gift that I want to give you. And I know that you're wrestling with your son and you're wrestling with your feelings and I'm wrestling with my emotions, but God's spirit said, this is a gift for you. This is a joy. Open this up and celebrate it. And I told him no, because I felt guilty. And I thought it was premature. How can I be filled with joy, Curtis, when my son's dying? It doesn't make sense. And I fought God on that. And I said, no. I'm not going to receive that. I'm not going to embrace it. I'm not going to take it. Leave me alone. God was so close and so powerful that I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I'd wander in pace all hours of the night. God's presence was so strong, it messed me up physically. And I came to a place where I had to ask God, you need to back off of me. You need to leave me alone. I can't go any further with you. And I can't accept this. And I can't embrace this. Leave me alone. Back off. I'll let you know when the timing is right. I'll let you know when I'm ready to receive this. But leave me alone, God. So as a diversion, I love to fish. So I figured, you know, I'm going to get distracted by what God is doing in my life. So I took the day off, and I took uh, Zach and Ben out fishing. Don't tell anybody. If you work for the city of Manchester, if you're a police officer, please don't let this out. But some of the best fishing in Manchester is actually at the reservoir off of Finley. And you have to walk by uh, several signs that say, no fishing. <laughs> you know I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfect. I've walked past many a signs in my life, brother. Uh, so I take them fishing, right? We're having a grand old time. We're catching fish. And I'm checking my phone. I want the update. Every night I'm waiting for the phone call that your son passed away in the middle of the night. We didn't want to disturb you. There's nothing that you could do. Every day I woke up, I had to drive past exit two, just north of exit two. I had to look at the scene of that accident. Every day going to Hartford to that hospital and I needed a break. And so I took my two boys out fishing and we had a grand old time, but I was checking my phone every every what seemed to be every two, three, four, five minutes, and God uh, convicted me and says, hey, you got other kids. You can't let your other kids walk away from this situation thinking you love Aaron more than them. I want you to lock your phone down for an hour, and I don't want you to look at it again. I want you to be wholly 100% present.
present in the moment with the person that you're with. Thanks for modeling that for me. So I'm watching my kids fish. I take pictures. We're having a great time, or at least they are. I'm still worried. I'm still wanting to check my phone, but I want to be obedient to God's spirit, so I don't. And I look at Zach, and Zach is a carbon copy of Aaron. And I looked at Zach, and this is my conversation with God. This is a painful conversation. God, if you want to take Aaron, that's your decision. Thanks for Zach. I don't know how I would get up and live the rest of my life without him. But with Zach, I'll always have a reminder. God's spirit moved on me out there to reservoir. He says, I got your attention now, don't I? I said, yes, you do. God's Spirit speaks this verse to my heart. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else your father, your mother, your wife, your children your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. I have always known in my heart that I have loved my wife and my family more than my heavenly father. I have no question about my love for Jesus. I have no question about my love and my faithfulness to God's Holy Spirit. When I became a Christian, I went through a personal revival for four years. And I've never had an issue with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, my Savior. I've always had an issue with the word Father. And God's Spirit said, you love your family more than me. So I saw myself in my quiet time I'm reading and I happen to be reading where Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. 
and I'm reading and it just comes alive and I see myself there, but I'm starting at the base of the mountain and I'm holding Aaron as a little baby, just a newborn. You remember that? Everybody remembers the first day. Everybody, re this is why we have four kids. Uh, we have four kids, Aaron, Ben, Katie, and, uh, and then we had to skip from C to Z because I would have probably filled in several of those letters by the time we got there. But when Zach came along, and maybe I'm sharing a little too much, but my wife, when we came home with Zach, she says, you will not touch me again <laughs> until you get the, and the way that she phrased it was snip, snip. <laughs> maybe a little too much. But you never forget when they're placed on that weight, that scale, and the nurse says, hey, you want to hold your baby? And you reach out and you never forget the sensation of this. You never forget the sensation of that connection at birth. It is priceless. There's no amount of the money in the world, there's no position of power, there's nothing in this world that compares to this. And I saw myself at the base of that mountain and I was holding him as a baby. And by the time I reached the top of the mountain, okay, there was already an altar built and there was an altar that looked like an altar for a king. It was hand carved. It was very ornate, kind of like those Celtic uh, crosses and a weaving and a banding around this altar. And by the time I got to the altar, I'm holding Aaron draped as a 19-year-old young man in my arms with the ventilator and the tubes and the IV, and he's hanging there dead, and he's hanging there lifeless. And God says, I want you to lay him on the altar, and I want you to turn around and walk back down that mountain without him, and don't look back. It was the most excruciating pain in my soul. to lay him up there and turn around and leave him with a heavenly father that I didn't trust. But I knew when I got to the bottom... I had never felt more clean and close to God because he had dealt with the idol that I had propped up for 19 years. He who wouldn't spare his own son. Why would I think that I would be immune 
Why would I think that I would be different just because of my background, just because of my emotions, just because of my feelings? Why would I think God would permit and turn a blind eye to and excuse the idolatry in my life? And he tore that down. And he shattered that. And as painful as it was, I've never felt so close and so clean. Before my God, let us enter his throne room of grace and mercy with confidence. to hear, see, and receive. July 16th, mind you, I travel quite a bit for work. I've always been sensitive to the highways and the byways, and you know, you've seen it. There's the corner, the intersection, there's a tree, there's a rock, there's some yard marker there, and there's the cute balloons and teddy bear and flowers and gifts and cards. I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I pass that, I pray. It's a quick prayer. God, be present. I can't even imagine the loss and the pain and the sorrow. Was it last week, 10 years? Is it still present? Is it still there? God, be so present and draw close to everybody in this situation and just let them know that you still love them and you're still present and you still have something to offer to these people. Never in my wildest imaginations would I ever think that I would have a tree Never did I ever think that I would have an intersection, that I would have a place of remembrance where one of my family members died on the spot, and he should have. So on this particular Sunday, I pulled up my uh, phone. We were in the stormy season. If you remember, July 4th was a horrendous storm. And so on this particular Sunday, and I want to give you the the correct date, it was uh, July uh, 16th. I'm, mind you, every time I go to the hospital, which is back and forth a couple times a day, I'm driving by the site, and I know exactly where it's at. So I'm in the car, and I intentionally move to the right-hand lane as far away as I can be from the scene of the accident. And then I actually kind of turn my head so that I don't see it. And I've been doing this for several days, for weeks now. And this particular Sunday, I look at the weather app, and there's another horrendous store, storm coming along, and it looks very similar to the one on July 4th, and so I try to time it out. I need to be at the hospital around 10 o'clock to be with Aaron. And so I time, this, uh, time my trip up uh, to the hospital, and it's a Sunday morning, and I don't know if you've, yeah, you do, because you come to church, but you know, if you get on 384 on a Sunday morning around 9 o'clock, it is like... Uh, uh, like a, a zombie apocalypse. Where is everybody? They're not at church. 
right? Get on any highway in the state of Connecticut at 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and I'm gonna. You could probably. Uh, uh, I wouldn't recommend this, but if you uh, if you want something exhilarating, uh, it'd probably be a good time to sit in Nate's passenger uh, seat on his uh, BMW Comp Three, and uh, he is uh, trained as a racer. It's absolutely exhilarating. But Sunday morning at nine o'clock would be the time to take a ride. Uh, with Nate. Nobody is there. And so on this particular Sunday, I want to get some pictures. I want to spend some time praying at the scene of the accident. And so I pull the truck over and I get up over there into the median. So it's safe. Nobody's behind me. It's a Sunday. So I get up there, Uh, but I kind of overshoot it and I'm probably about a hundred feet away from it. And so I get out of the truck and I go over and I start taking pictures. And it's the third picture, uh, July 16th. And I'm standing there and I'm taking pictures and I'm just praying and I'm saying, God, Spare me. I have nothing to give you. I'm not in a place to make a deal with you. I can't barter with you. I have nothing. Just be merciful. Just be merciful. It starts raining. I'm soaking wet. I run to the truck. The windows are all fogged up. I look out my mirrors on 384. It looks like the entrance lane at the Daytona 500. I don't know where the thousands of cars came from, but I knew that it was unsafe for me to pull out on 384. And I opened up my camera, my phone, and I started looking at the pictures. In the scene of the accident, there's four trees shaped like a C. <sighs> They go sideways. I don't know if they went airborne or not, but they go up and they slam into these first two trees and the G-force whips in, totally destroys the car. The picture of the other side with Aaron is, it's nothing but a miracle that they got him out. It took 45 minutes to get him out of there. He was suffocating uh, from the blood and the mucus in his lung. His right lung was totally collapsed. He's internal bleeding. A couple of the uh, first responders were so drawn to him and knew him and rode in the ambulance to uh, the hospital. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at these uh, pictures and I see the, the two trees are standing up, but at the base there's two trees that are knocked down. The force of the car was so strong that it snapped two trees about this big right at the base, right, at the, right where the root goes in the ground. It just snapped them and those two trees fell down flat. And I'm looking at this picture. And God's Spirit says, You know, my son shattered two trees at Calvary. Blew my mind. And then the verse comes to mind Isaiah 53 5. He was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed 
for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped. We know the end is by his stripes. We're healed. God's presence filled that truck. Nobody could tell me differently. Still in a coma. Experts are wringing their hands trying to figure out how to deal with this situation. But I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew it was done. And there wasn't a shred of evidence to support what God's Spirit spoke to me in that truck on a rainy day on a Sunday going into that hospital. My faith was so full and pure and earnest that if I got to that hospital and they told me your son had died, I'd say, don't touch him for three days. Don't touch him. You don't have the last word on this. God has spoken to me. By the stripes of Jesus, your son's getting up. That's on the 16th. On the 20th, a Thursday at 5 o'clock, the chief trauma surgeon, his right-hand man, and the uh, chief trauma nurse want to have a meeting with us. Everything's kind of been covert. You can't piece it together. Nobody's really being open. They want to err on the side of caution. They certainly don't want to provide any type of false hope. And so they call a meeting with me and Nicole at 5 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. And they, they start talking about, listen, your son's ran out of time. We can't leave the ventilator in. The only option on the table really is a trach and moving the ventilator to the throat. And he hasn't been able to receive any nutrients. There's some issues with his stomach and the esophagus going into the stomach. And so they wanted to put a feeding peg in. So we're having this life support conversation. Nicole's across the room. I'm looking at her. And the doctors say, listen, this is a procedure to buy time. We don't know how much time we have, but we need to do everything at our disposal to buy Aaron time to see if he turns the corner on this. I've been praying all along. I feel God's used the medical staff. They want to do the surgery the next day, Friday at 7.45 in the morning. So I'm all on board with it. I'm looking across the room at my wife, and she is not on board. Now, it's one thing to uh, have a debate over who spent $100 at uh, Macy's. It's altogether different to have a debate over your son in a coma in the neuro ICU unit. And I can see the expression on her face. And so I asked her, I says, what do you think? She says, I think we ought to wait till Monday. And the surgeon says, he's not going to get any better. We've dealt with hundreds, if not thousands, of cases like this. We're just, uh, we're just prolonging the issue here. 
Time is of the essence. We really need to get this done. And they're really putting uh, the pressure on the pedal here and really kind of backing us in a corner and saying, this really is your only option and it needs to be tomorrow. I know what she's thinking. This is Thursday at 5. The church is going to have a prayer meeting on Friday, and then she wants to go to church on Sunday, right? So she wants to get through the weekend. She's still believing. She's still believing, and I believe, but I want to get the business on the medical side of things. I want to buy time. I want to prolong. I know God spoke in my heart that he's going to be healed. I'm seeing this as part of the process. So this is a Thursday at 5. So we agree. If we can call at 744 on Friday and cancel the surgery, you'll cancel it absolutely. So let's just tentatively put it on the schedule for Friday at 745. Okay, we're in good order here. 7 o'clock. Mind you, Aaron's on fentanyl. He's in a coma. The only movement that we've seen for this entire process is nerve damage and maybe some nerve healing. Okay? He's not responding to outside stimuli at all. Two hours later, his eyes are open. He's laying there. He's heavily sedated. We don't know if he's connecting with anybody in the room. We don't know if he's aware of his surroundings. But I do know one thing. We've sat there for 15, 16 days, and the eyes haven't been open, and here it is. And we've been told uh, that each night they try to roll them around and test them and get them to respond, and he, they can't wake them up. And this is a medically induced coma that they can't bring him out of. Four hours later, he's sitting up with his eyes open. I don't know if he's connecting, but I'm holding his hand and he's squeezing. But four hours after that life support conversation, this kid looks entirely different. We stay as long as we can. We go home. It's my turn to get up on Friday, rush down to the hospital. We kind of work in shifts now. I get in there, it's totally chaotic. Totally chaotic. There's a respiratory therapist, two nurses in there. Bells, whistles, everything going off. I, ha I don't have a clue as to what's going on. And I go, what's going on? And he's like, you know. And uh, the respiratory therapist says he's over-breathing the ventilator. We have to take him off the ventilator. I'm yelling. I said, don't touch him, don't touch him. You told us last night uh, we need to go through this procedure. Now you're telling me he's over-breathing on a ventilator. Don't touch him. Let me process this. Let me process this. So I walk up to his bed. His head's right here. I put my hands on the railing. And I feel the powerful presence of Jesus enter that room and put an arm around me and stretched out and touched his chest. Aaron.
Aaron. It's time. He's red, he's sweating, he's shaking, he's struggling for life. And they pull that ventilator out of him. He's struggling for air. You gotta cough, Aaron, you gotta cough, you gotta cough. He coughs, crap comes all out. His head comes forward. His complexion comes out. And the respiratory therapist points at me and she goes, Aaron, Aaron, do you know who that is? And she points at me and Aaron says, that's my dad. take 10, 15 minutes in the bathroom to clean up. I am bawling. I'm beside myself. I've been told since July 4th to not have hope and prepare yourself for the worst. We don't know what kid you're going to get back if he even comes back. Jesus had the last word on this. I come running out of the bathroom. I'm yelling, please excuse the language. There's no explanation for this. This is a damn miracle. It's a damn miracle. This is a miracle. The respiratory therapist looks at me, she's bawling, she can't even speak, she's shaking her head. Two nurses, it's her first day in the ICU unit, she's looking at me. I'm thinking, what a day to get broken in, first day on trauma ICU. We're all bawling like a baby, I keep yelling, it's a miracle, it's a miracle. I can't explain this, can you explain it? Ah, I can't explain it, I can't explain it, I can't, I can't, I can't explain it. News traveled so fast through that hospital that there was a line of doctors and nurses to come see the miracle. And the two doctors that told us that he wasn't going to get better were so embarrassed that when they came down, they stood outside of the door and sent another doctor in (laughs) to do the evaluation. That's our story.
three weeks in rehab. When he came home from rehab, he couldn't sit up on his own. His core was shot. He could only slide from a board to the chair, from the board to the toilet, from the board to the seat in the shower. He could only slide. He couldn't stand. He couldn't walk. God bless the yakas on the spot, put up a handicap ramp. Within 30 days, he was walking. We still have our challenges. We still have our hopes. We still have our prayers. We still have our dreams. And you're certainly a part of that. We invite you to join us in prayer for that because God's not done with Aaron's body and God's not done with Aaron's soul. And God is doing a miraculous work in his soul and changing his desires and his ambitions and his plan. This was a life-altering, uh, miraculous event for our family and especially for a young man that I've been praying, God, you have a plan for his life, a plan to prosper him, to give him a future and to give him a hope. And God upheld that promise and God answered my prayer of 19 years. But it's up to you, son. It's up to you, Ben, and it's up to you, Katie, and it's up to you, Zach to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. That's my story. What I do know is that we're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or going into a storm. And without faith in Jesus, my faith would have been shipwrecked, brother. I know that. I don't know if I could ever set foot in a church or a worship service again. If I had to watch that hole be dug and a six-foot casket lowered into the ground, with me preaching my final sermon, a funeral for my oldest son. That's where I was at. I know some of you have been there, and maybe some of you are there. And this is a time to recommit your life to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And not just for salvation, but an ongoing, on-growing relationship with Him. He will be faithful. He will be true. He will always be there. And this is an opportunity for you to respond. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message blesses you. For those interested in learning more about us, please visit us at newriverchurch.org. Thanks, and have a great week.